Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to and beyond fireside chats. My name is Kasha and I'm back once again speaking to Chris Brown and Deborah Fox, the design and hospitality gurus behind Fox Brown Creative. Chris and Deborah have worked in some of the world's most remote and challenging destinations, designing lodges that meet the design expectations of the world's most cosmopolitan travelers. The sheer logistics associated with some of these projects must be absolutely immense, Chris and Deborah. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit about how the design process begins? What are the key pillars that you consider when you take on a project? Gosh, um, I think obviously the most important pillar for us, we always start with who's the guest, why are they coming, what is the reason that they're coming to this place? And the second is the location. I think for us, the location informs the design, it informs the experience, it informs uh, what we're trying to create for guests to come. So that really is, I don't know if we chatted about it before, but that really is the starting process for us. We, We call it, it's almost called circles in the forest where we sit in a space and really get to feel what is it that guests want to experience there. And we go round and round in circles. And really then, I think Chris really sets the direction from, from that point on. And then the rest of us fall in line with, okay, yes, that makes sense. We've got a building like that or we've got a space like that. That's what we can do. So it's location and the guest experience. Those are the two real starting points for us always yeah and then followed very closely by uh you know some really practical issues <laughs> can, you know, we around, <laughs> can we actually do this you know what are our transport requirements and, uh, and all the logistics stuff that that <laughs> comes into play quite soon mm. those all make make a difference in the selection process of and the design process and, uh, and I, I think that if we know who you're designing for that really is the the key to putting yourself in 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 the feet or in the heart or in the eyes of the, of the person who's coming there. That really is the start. Yeah. Mm. There must be some very interesting trade-offs that you have to make there. So while you're keeping in mind who, who the traveler is, to what extent do the actual logistics, the availability of, of materials, accessibility of the site, are those factors that all influence your design? Y- yes, 100%. You know, you have to be realistic at the get-go on what can be achieved mm-hmm. in the design phase. You know, it's no good designing a beautiful steel and glass building if you've got to schlep it over 16 borders and it just it just is unrealistic and the costs become prohibitive. We have done some crazy things uh, yeah. like that in the past. Yeah, when, <laughs> when we were younger, we used to make wilder decisions that we become perhaps a little bit safe in our old age. No, yeah. I'm joking, I'm joking. But... I mean, when we built in Gorongora Crater Lodge, we uh, and that was 25 years ago, we couldn't get the the pillars to hold up the buildings we couldn't get enough of them in Tanzania and there was talk of us flying a 747 upwards. I, I remember phoning South African Airways cargo back in 1995 to say how much does a 747 cost please to take hold from the middle of Swaziland to Tanzania <laughs> I actually made the call. So we, we actually learned from that we don't really so we do have to take into consideration the logistics can we actually do what we're proposing and again, that comes back to if you're building something that's appropriate for the location, you'll probably be using materials and designing with things that are relevant to the area and from the area, wherever possible. So obviously, logistics are one of the things that you have to look at. What are the other challenges of designing for and building for remote destinations? I mean, places as diverse as the Namib Desert or Bhutan or the Okavango Delta. Well, 
we've been very fortunate in that our, our clients are, are generally quite realistic and supportive and understanding of what's involved. But often you, we get a client who has a really grandiose, crazy idea. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's often at that stage you have to sort of marry reality with, with the dream. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be a bit, a bit tricky. Yeah. at the beginning of a project. And also also contractors, you know, the projects that we build and design, they're small boutique projects. And, and really to get a contractor that understands that organic type of building, that's prepared to take on a project that's um, big enough but small enough, if you know what I mean, it's not a massive building in a city, and to prepare to take on the logistics of it, it's very difficult to find. They're those builders are few and far between that will... And someone who understands what a program spreadsheet looks like. <laughs> At the same time. So you, we've either got one extreme, you've either got like a bush builder who can tie together a few poles and knock in the sand, or you've got these major contractors. And somewhere in between, we need to find those guys that are, are between the two, that can marry the two. So that's, that's often a challenge. And, and other challenges, I think, are, are often budget constraints because so often the logistics eat up such a large part of your budget. And, you know, we, we design Ambion's ethos. It's all about sustainability. And the business isn't sustainable if the financial model doesn't make sense. So that's one aspect that also has to be sustainable. So when uh, transport and duties and logistics, et cetera, take up sometimes up to 50% of your budget, it, uh, that's a big challenge for us. You must have built up quite a database of contractors, like the people that you work with that you know get what you do and are equipped to handle the challenges. Do you sort of find yourselves working with the same people over and over again simply because they know what you need from them? Yes, we do have we have regional specialists. You know, we've got a team in Kenya that we prefer. When I say team, it's really on the construction mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah. And we have a sort of a team in, in various regions we operate. But it's quite nice to share it out a little bit, you know, to look for new talent and look for new subcontractors and new materials. So you, keep, you have to keep an eye open all the time. And places like Kenya, I mean, so much has become available there in the last 10 years. It's a very different country to operate in to, to when we built, for example, Battle Camp for the first time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it is useful um, to work with the same guys because what happens is we start developing a kind of shorthand uh, between each other. And they'll say they'll be able to refer to a methodology that they've applied before, and we'll be able to refer to a, a design technique that uh, worked for us in another environment. And so we do find that if we work with the same teams or, or teams that know us, uh, we actually end up building better buildings. And um, and yes. often we've learned our school fees. We've, you know, we've paid our school fees on the on the initial one. So by the second or third project you're doing together, you're short-circuiting quite a lot of uh, mm-hmm. potential issues. Um, so where we can, we would, but as Chris says, sometimes you also need to try out the new yeah. talent. Now, with the nature of the destinations that you work with, obviously every once in a while there are natural obstacles as well. I mean, I remember it must have been back around 2008 or so when Enbeyond was building Karana and Kudum. There, were extreme, there was extremely high water levels in the Arcovango Delta. Do these things have an impact on, on what you do as well, and how do you deal with it? It's crazy. I used, I used to have hair before those projects. <laughs> a thick head of hair. That's a big impact. <laughs> we need to get divorced. That's another impact. <laughs> Gosh, uh, yeah, that was challenging. And actually the same when we built Sandibi a few years later in 2014, you know, Botswana is, is particularly tricky with the logistics in terms of high waters. And funny enough, you always want to build uh, 
in the low season and um, that's when the waters are high, etc. So we had some challenges, but, but uh, we work with the, the amazing logistics team uh, on the Ambient side who have experience now with this. And I think Desne has it down pat with getting the truck to the one side of the water and the tractor to the other and we offload and we make sure that, you know, nothing, you know, only the, the tractor goes underwater, not the actual beds. We have had beds, wardrobes, tents floating down rivers. We've had uh, roads wash away in Tanzania during El Nino when we were building. We've had trenches collapse on us while we were trying to build um, Kichwa. We, uh, we've had whole containers hijacked. And, and lo- lost just, for months. Yeah. Somali bandits steal all the silverware when we were trying to oh when we were trying to, to to build in the early days. Corrupt custom officials at border crossings. <laughs> oh no, it's it's there's a long list. <laughs> yeah, we had a, a truck disappear when we were building um, a lodge in, in in Kenya. But but mostly, I mean, it's it's related to rain. When the rains start yeah. falling, then that really has a knock-on <laughs> effect for all sorts of things. Um, yeah, because we can, you know, we cleverly, we use uh, forklifts, we use um, crane trucks. You can kind of circumnavigate any, any uh, potential problem if you, if you know what, what you're facing. And, and given that we've been doing this for 30 years now, we're kind of getting used to facing those challenges before. But as Chris said, when the, when the rain comes and, and the natural elements take over, it's, it's tough. Uh, yeah, and dust storms. Dust storms are a real thing in the desert. So uh, that's when the open sources flow. Oh my God! We had two or three days one during the installation where you literally couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then you pretty much just have to stop everything and wait until it's over. Yeah, you do. You do, and uh, literally just kind of dust off twenty layers of twenty centimeters of sand of everything and pretend it was all fine. You know, carry on. That's certainly an experience that I think few other teams in other parts of the world can claim to have. Apart from the sort of the the natural weather obstacles, um, are there times when you have to deal with maybe wildlife encounters as well? You know, is there a time where you just can't access the site or work on it because I don't know, say a leopard decides to come down and lie yeah. come and lie down in the middle of the site? Yeah, what what often <laughs> on sites, especially in Botswana, the elephants. The elephants play havoc. They mm-hmm. You know, they're fearless and they come in and you can't do anything when they're around and you can't chase them. So you just got to, you just got to wait. Sometimes our bigger challenges though with wildlife are once the lodge is built. So, I mean, Chris is, <laughs> when we've specified a leather sofa, you come the next morning and while you're unpacking the hyenas have yeah. eaten it. The hyenas or, at Ingala are particularly oh, fond of leather. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh, the poor lodge, they've actually got a budget line in their, in their, cap, in their, in their yeah, just, just to replace, to replace sofas once a year. Yeah, we, we had a kudu chase um, chase a lion through the sitting room while we were setting up at Ingala once and uh, destroyed everything. And we were opening in a week or two. So we had to kind of scramble and start again. You know, and at Nebeka, when we were on a site visit, um, we all went to bed in our little uh, builder's tents and came the next morning and the hyenas had trashed all the freezers and, and fridges. And baboons. We and once, years ago, when, when Anne Beyond and CC Africa managed Londolosi, we had an incident with a baboon just prior to our VIP arrival in the lodge. As and we it were was opening. chaos. Yeah. No. <laughs> but it was, you know, luckily the guest was good, good natured and they, they thought it was all part of the fun. Yeah. So those are really, I mean, the challenges come, come mostly after we, like when we're busy with the interiors, because you can work around the, the, the wildlife while, you, while you're still building. It must have been some pretty hair-raising encounters on and off. 
but um, certainly Magridium, amazing stories to look at now. Okay, so there's really no sort of one blueprint that, that you can use for, for designing or building a lodge. How do you account for the natural setting and still bring in that element of, of luxury and sophistication that travelers are looking for? You know, there isn't, a, there isn't one blueprint. There is, you know, each time you think you've got it down pat and you think you can apply what you learned in the previous project to the next one, it changes. There's a new set of parameters. There's a new, a whole new palette to take advantage of. So it, it, it's always different. It's always different. And I think what we do try and do is let, let the environment speak for itself. So we bring it in in textures, in finishes, in the colors that we use. Uh, we try and reflect the landscape that, um, that, we're oper- that we're operating in or that we're building in. Often it, it goes down to taking away things rather than putting things in to create that sense of, sense of luxury, stripping, stripping things down to their, their most natural form. Yeah. Um, and, and I think our guests, our guests are looking for that. They're looking for, for real uh, textures, for, for authentic materials. And, and we try and use that because it's synthetic and, and artificial, we could, you know, is that's where you lose the sense of luxury. I know and beyond is for and beyond it's always important to have a sense of place about the lodges. Obviously, some of the things that you've just spoken about speak to that. What are some other techniques that you use to create that sort of sense of belonging? Well, I think it's again it comes back to the the, the core thing is the is the setting. I think we also take into account what is the the, the local tribal or cultural custom without appropriating too much. And the, the weather also plays a huge thing, climate. Um, so there's, there's a whole bunch of elements that come into, into play um, at the beginning of a project when you're deciding what it's going to be or what it's going to look like. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite complex, actually. There definitely a lot of elements to look at. Have you ever yeah. found yourself in a situation where you had to dramatically change a design between concept and implementation for any of the reasons that we've spoken about or any other reason. What when you mean when the, when the money runs out? <laughs> that too, yes. Um, 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 not really, once no. we get going. You know, I think we face all those obstacles uh, ahead of uh, ahead of actually getting started. Obviously, there's challenges as you start building and the, the adjustments that you make to the design where you wanted maybe a building or something hanging and then you can't have it hanging, you have to build it up with stilts. But but not really. We've never had to pivot a design totally from one uh, concept through to a totally different design in the end. Uh, we go through... There's quite a... Um, it's quite a process before we actually get onto site to start building. You know, we present concepts, then we de- develop the design... Then we present uh, um, artistic renditions so that that side of things, the approval side, is all, uh, all, all, all covered. And by the time we're doing that, we've been to site a few times to understand some of the complexities that we might face there. So uh, we haven't really had to do that, have we? No. So, I mean, on a mature business like and beyond, there's so many people who have their say at the beginning. You know, that everyone's roped in, sales and marketing team. So it, there's a very clear brief. And so with that in place, you don't really need to. We've never, well, we've never had to. I think a, a clear yeah. brief yeah. and the experience that comes from your side certainly helps, I'm sure. Yes, that too, yeah. <laughs> Not to say we don't make mistakes. No. <laughs> we've made a few of those. <laughs> How much time do you typically spend on site 
you know, before you start a project and also during during the course of a project? Is that quite an extensive thing? Uh, yeah, we, um, we're, we're quite familiar with many of the Ambion sites, but on a normal project where we haven't been to the site before, we'd, we'd spend a good two or three days receiving the brief on the actual site before we can go away and do a concept. Mm -hmm. Then as we develop the design further, it's probably another two to three days in, at, a, as a, at a time. And then once the project starts rolling, it's a site meeting every month for two days. And sometimes, depending on how close the site is or how fast mm -hmm. the build is, it's every two weeks. So we're working on a site not for and beyond at the moment. And as soon as lockdown eases, okay. it's a bi-weekly site meeting. So every Monday we go up and we're on site for a night. But, te but technology is really helping with that. So mm -hmm. we, we are finding ourselves that we don't have to travel as much. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always better to do it if you can. Mm -hmm. But during, certainly during this age of COVID where we've had to really, that, I suppose that's been one of our biggest pivots is using technology yeah. and our design approach. So we've, we've uh, used 3D um, mapping processes for sites that we're not able to go to at the mm -hmm. moment where they, they, they 3D map an entire building and we're designing, you can measure absolutely every single little last detail to the millimeter as to what's going on and have a good sense of what the building is, what's happening. That must be quite an unusual experience to sort of, to find yourself having to, to design in that kind of circumstance where you actually don't know the ins and outs of the site. It must be quite a brand new and interesting element. It, it is. It's, it's challenging. Uh, it's also making us think uh, slightly differently. Um, I think you have to be much more, the design process takes a bit longer. What's difficult actually is the tactile nature of what we build. So, so often what we build or what we design or what we develop is, is based on an under, a, a sense of feeling the materiality or what it feels like in the space when you stand in it so often. That's when you pick up the errors, I suppose. The lights, the, the shadows, the, yeah. all that, those kind of things. And I think that's one of our uh, USPs is that we can get to a site and we can say, oh, that needs to be a bit higher. It doesn't feel right when you're standing in a building. Whereas I think if you're building a, a big city hotel that you just do the, the design for and then you tender it out to somebody else and you walk away, you can feel that nobody actually came and stood here and thought, how does this, how's this actually feeling? You know, they just built what was on the plan. So it is better for us to be outside when, where we can be, but for now we just... Uh, we can't wait to get back to site, actually. <laughs> Chris has got Enough itchy feet. Enough already. Itchy feet. <laughs> He's trying to figure out every way that he can to get out of the, out of the country. <laughs> now, you've, you've done a lot of work in Africa and throughout Asia as well, but, but having started in Africa, was there any destination that you found yourself asked to design for that you thought, well, you know, this is really out of my experience. It's something I have no idea about this place or what it's like. Have you ever experienced that? And, and, and if you did, what, what did you do to prepare yourselves? Do you do research on the sites ahead of time, the cultures, everything surrounding it? How do you actually get around that element? Well, uh, there's, two, there's two answers to that question is that in, in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa, no, we've never felt ourselves out of our depth. But when we get into sort of further north, yes. we've, we've worked in the Middle East and in sort of in those, those desert scapes, those environments are very challenging and, and a little scary. Mm -hmm. But for actually, the most scary project we've worked on in terms of testing ourselves and, and pushing ourselves has actually been an inner city project in the UK, in London. Those, 
that's truly terrifying for us because mm -hmm. there are so many human variables that we don't have to deal with <laughs> in Africa <laughs> on a project like that and so many regulations. I mean, that, that for us is exhausting. But, but if I think of when, um, when we started building in India in 2000, that was really a process of exploring the culture. And it was a long process of many, many visits before we actually found a site and understood uh, the nature of the beast, I think, that we were dealing with there. So that, that process, uh, as you say, was researching. We spent a lot of time understanding suppliers, going, going to different cities, going to different palaces to understand what was appropriate, what was not. But that was a lot of research before we actually built our first yes. lodge there. Yeah, it's, it's always the human ele element in one form or another, whether it's mm. the project team or the regional custom that you've got mm. to be mindful of, or those those are, are often where the, the hiccups can, can occur. Yeah. What would you say has been your most challenging and beyond project and why? Could have been Corona. For sure. Yeah, I, I think, think the and the reason for that was uh, the short time frame. We built two lodges in eight months, designed and built from start to finish in eight months in the highest floodwaters in Botswana. And uh, so, from the time we got the go ahead to the time we opened the doors was eight months, which is unheard of. Two different lodges, two locations, um, and really, really tough, tough conditions. So we were designing and building and uh, buying and shipping all at the same time. It was, um, I wouldn't uh, ever do that again. So that was really, was our toughest. Yeah. Um, and Namibia is not easy. I mean, Namibia, the logistics there are quite complicated. Mm -hmm. um, not an and beyond lodge, but another project, you know, the, the roads are so bad. So everything arrived, mm -hmm. despite being beautifully packed, everything just arrived smashed, the crockery, the glassware, the, so that, that kind of stuff happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a bit disheartening. But those are little challenges. Each yeah. project's got its own challenges. We could we could <laughs> spend all morning giving you a challenge on each one that we've had. But yeah, overall, I think Kudam and Karana were the, yeah. were, were the toughest. And probably a bit of a trick question. If you could redo the design of any end beyond lodge, which one would it be? And again, why? Well, I think for me, one that I've always been, you know, because it was built before, certainly before I joined CC Africa back in the day, and even Deborah, because it mm. was one, it was Pinder Forest. And in its day, it was so groundbreaking and so <clears throat> amazing and so fresh in the safari vernacular. Um, but I think that is one project that I, that I know we've, we've been talking to and beyond, and we've done some proposals, and it's, it's in play, and it's on their radar. Yes. But for me, that's one that I really would love to get stuck into. I think it mm -hmm. was designed for a different kind of guest, yeah. um, a different yeah. time, and I think... It always lacked a sense of of, of heart because of the where the guest area was split up, and I think that's something I'd love to address mm. to give it a, a real sense of of home, homeliness, which mm. which as beautiful as mm -hmm. it is and it's stunning and it's really it's it's really held its own for such a long time. It, I've always felt it lacked a little bit of soul, maybe. Yeah, you don't know where to be. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite and beyond sites. So. I would absolutely love to see what you would be able to do with yeah, it. Yeah, no, we've got some interesting plans uh, <laughs> if, uh, when we'll go back to normal, hopefully. <laughs> Chris and Deborah, thank you so much. The time has absolutely flown and it's been absolutely fascinating chatting to you. We hope to have you back again with us soon. Uh, thanks for your time, Cassia. Lovely chatting to you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to and Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. 
If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.